Thanks for being with us. Well, when we talk about public art, you probably would think of pieces that you love, maybe some that you hate, and maybe that's the whole point, getting the conversation going. But there are bigger conversations as well. And public art is the subject of a new column in the Vancouver Courier written by columnist Mike Klassen. And Mike Klassen joins us now on the line. Mike, good morning. Good morning, Jill. We are talking about the 120-foot ladder in a particular neighborhood in Vancouver. Why, why did you want to write about this and draw attention to your thoughts about this piece of art? Oh, that's a good question. Well, first of all, uh, it's on my daily commute to work. So um, I, I see it, and I, every time I go by, I'm, I'm, I look at it, and I go, okay, what were we trying to do here, and could have this been uh, approached better? And what kind of policies are in place for allow us to, to put a piece like this that, yes, people are talking about it. I'm clearly talking about it. Uh, but is this uh, is this enhancing the public realm? Is this and, and you know, are are how come we sometimes get into these kind of misfires when it comes to public art? And some might argue that exact uh, that you kind of made right there, the fact that you are talking about it, it's provocative, it's making you think in that it's, it's fulfilling a big role of public art. I suppose so. You could have put pretty much anything there uh, that was a bit outrageous and and people would be talking about it. Um, This one I initially was uh, struck by a a couple of contrasts. Number one, um, it's uh, it's a 120-foot ladder, literally, um, in the middle of a busy um, thoroughfare. Uh, it has no real connection to the neighborhood or the or the, the, the surroundings at all. You ha- to to get even close to it, you have to go through traffic, I guess. Um, and it is uh, uh, also extraordinarily um, an expensive project. It costs uh, nearly seven hundred thousand dollars to put this thing where it is. Um, I don't. I'm not opposed to spending a lot of money on a, a fine piece of public art, um, but this is one of the more low income uh, neighborhoods in the city. So that could really benefit from some uh, nice work and that would enhance the public realm. And, and that just doesn't exist here. Uh, where exactly is it for people that aren't familiar with this uh, particular piece of art? I think most people, when they're driving uh, eastbound on Kingsway, it's kind of, um, it's on Gladstone Street, which is kind of between Victoria and Nanaimo. Uh, as you're driving, you're sort of going uphill a little bit. and You'll see it um, if you're going eastbound. And a lot of people, when they first saw it, probably thought it was a piece of infrastructure. And I, I, I was worried at one point that it might be something that they'd hang um, those, those ghastly-looking um, cell phone uh, antennas that they do sometimes uh, because of poor reception. Um, but no, it's just a ladder that goes 120 feet in the air. And you mentioned the price of it, the, the cost, from what I understand. So this was made, was it West Bank, the developer that actually paid for it? Yes. So the city has a requirement uh, for what's known as a community amenity contribution. And sometimes that uh, contribution is in the form of public art. The policy was changed, um, and I'm it, because the city of Vancouver's website and information is so terribly opaque uh, at the best of times, uh, it was really hard for me to figure out the sort of the decision-making loops. But what I can tell is council approved this development with uh, the the budgeted $671,000 in 2013. But in 2014, the city changed their policy uh, to make it so that developers themselves don't get to do the piece of art. They just take the money. So I'm not sure exactly which 
sort of category this falls underneath, whether West Bank got behind this in some way and decided to choose this artist. They're certainly promoting it on their website, and West Bank, to their credit, has done some very fine public art attached with their sort of luxury condos. Um, but this is um, this is just something that was um, put up in about five or six years ago. Right. So I, I guess one of the questions could be too, in that in these agreements where developers have to do, have to fund public art or they have to fund these community um, amenities, I guess one could argue that yes, public art is very important. But if we're talking about seven hundred thousand dollars, imagine what that could have also done if we're talking about parks or uh, other things that people could use or that could bring enjoyment to people in the neighborhood. Yeah, and there is a, a lot of money that goes into community amenity contributions and, and, uh, and public amenities. And yeah, it seems like uh, you could have taken 700 grand and, and used it in all, a lot of other really fine things that people would enjoy. This is one of them that I probably wouldn't put in that category. Again, some people find it interesting and provocative. I find um, that there are some really fine pieces of public art, and I really do think that um, uh, our city benefits from them. But again, we sometimes get these misfires um, and uh, people are sort of left scratching their heads. And I I don't think that helps the cause of the people promoting public art in the city. Uh, you mentioned in the article as well the uh, East Van Cross sign, which was done by Ken Lum uh, several years ago, because that too is a provocative piece of art and certainly sparked a lot of conversation when it went up. Yeah, I mean, it's a religious symbol. Um, I think it's a, a more whimsical take on it. I mean, if you grew up in the East Side like I did, uh, East Van, that, that insignia was attached to uh, old gang uh, guys that used to uh, you know, roam the streets uh, a, a generation ago. So uh, Ken Lum, who grew up in Vancouver, I think did a, a great job of kind of capturing a bit of the, the wry humor of, of, of using a sign like that. And, and, and it's huge, of course. It kind of reminds somebody of something you'd see in, in, in Rio de Janeiro or something. It's, it's so iconic. Um, but that, too, is also um, one that I think um, people like uh, although I don't think the city has sort of given it its proper due, I suggested that it might be fun um, if somebody could actually sort of be able to stand in, in a way so you can sort of see it. I, I said it would be an Instagram mecca um, if there was a little viewing stand there at the at the transit station, which nobody goes to. It's uh, BCC uh, um, Clark Station is is kind of the end of the line, so there's nobody there. And I thought, well, why don't you put some kind of get a philanthropist to um to erect a sign and people can take pictures there and it would be kind of nice but uh instead there's sort of letting trees grow in front of it right now hmm. and it always there there is always some and, and again maybe that's the point of the discussion but there are always always people that that will like something will dislike something and will will maybe get it uh, get what the artist was getting at or have some other interpretation uh, i'm thinking too and you mentioned the uh, the the upside down church piece of art that was that was certainly uh, getting a lot of people talking uh, there's the poodle which I can, it's odd. I can picture the poodle in my head, but I can't remember exactly where it is. But there certainly are a lot of examples of that. Yeah, the poodle's on Main Street around uh, 19th or something like that. You know what? I Look, I, I sort of come from a bit of a punk rock ethos and, you know, from college radio. And, and so I, I like things that challenge uh, our, our, our norms. And, and so if a piece is provocative, like the Upside Down Church, I'm all for it. Um, and you're right, uh, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to sometimes not get it or they're going to be upset. 
And I suppose maybe you can classify me as being a bit too stodgy on this ladder. But I think that um, I just think that we there, there's times when we get it right. And I don't want us to sort of lose sight of the fact that these things really do um, uh, add to community. And, and people, once they embrace a piece of art, it becomes a part of the, the fabric of the community. And as a result, it, it can drive a lot of positive things uh, local business um, and some community pride. And, and, and that's why public art really should be uh, something that we should always not, uh, um, you know, keep investing in. I also question, uh, looking at uh, the picture of the ladder and for anybody that's seen it, uh, what is it made of that it costs $700,000? Um, it, it looks to me like it's, it's a pretty sturdy piece of metal um, it has some tempered glass on the sort of the bottom 20 feet to make it um, inaccessible for somebody who just sort of ran over. Although uh, I, I so suppose if somebody was going to attempt to scale it um, and it would be really dangerous if they did, um, it, it wouldn't be that hard. It, um, I think also the base itself. I mean, I uh, watched, uh, you know, anytime you see them dig open a, a street and start kind of putting in new, uh, uh, new medians and so on. It, it's there's a lot of money and a lot of uh, staff time that goes into it. So I can sort of see that that's part of the cost. Um, but of course, the commission for the artist. So I hope the artist got paid well for True. for their work. So these things add up. <laughs> that is true. Uh, what what do you think the, the message is as well? Because you you also touch on location. And do you think does Vancouver put too much art in certain areas and not in other areas, or it could do better on on figuring out where art in the city is is best placed or most needed? You know, that's uh, and that was another point that I wanted to make is that I I looked at the map and the if you if you put a grid over the city, almost uh, probably about eighty percent or eighty five percent of public art is within a couple of kilometers of the downtown core. And I suppose that, you know, there's there's a lot of walkability down there. People can sort of see and ex- access it. I'd love to see some of the other parts of the city and, and the broader metro region. Uh, that Miss Mao, that very provocative Miss Mao sculpture, the giant head of uh, Vladimir Lenin, um, was next to a Rona in, in Richmond. Um, you know, these sometimes these plates, these pieces just need to be in a place where they can, um, uh, do something to the communities out there as well. And I'd love to see some, some more things on the east side and the south side of the city and, and some of our high streets. All right. It's a, an interesting topic and one that certainly uh, sparks a lot of conversations. Uh, Mike, thanks for the column and thanks for coming on to talk about it this morning. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks, Jill. Well, we have talked about the antiquated liquor laws in this province before. There have been some changes made, but there are still huge obstacles when it comes to restaurants and other businesses being able to purchase alcohol from places other than the government. And that has got the attention of Canada's interim commissioner of competition. And Matthew Boswell is actually encouraging the province of B.C. to update the distribution of alcohol and how that is done. Making these changes will open up competition in British Columbia, uh, encourage innovation. Uh, That was uh, Matthew Boswell speaking uh, in a Global News report. Uh, I'm joined now by John Claridis. He is with Marquee Wine Cellars uh, to talk a bit more about this. John, thanks so much for coming on the show this morning. My pleasure. Uh, You and I have talked about uh, the antiquated liquor laws as well. As the owner of a wine shop, how are you negatively impacted by the current model? (laughs) Uh, a mass amount, two, uh, several, several ways. One, uh, small independent restaurant, restaurant tours 
are unable to buy some of the unique wines that I or other importers bring in directly. Uh, they're only allowed to buy from liquor stores in full case lots, so that's an expensive proposition. Number two is uh, over the last 30 years, for me personally, I have brought in a plethora of really unique wines only to lose them to importers because I can't sell to restaurants. So my distribution is is nullified and limited because of government policy, so I can't expand my business. Which I, I think for people that aren't familiar with the laws, it seems absolutely absurd that a restaurant that may be down the street from your wine shop couldn't come in and say, I'm putting on this special tonight. Here's a red that I would love to be able to sell with it. I'm probably not going to sell a whole case. I won't buy five bottles and have them ready for people if they would like. They can't do that. It's spot on. Absolutely. A restaurateur, like a regular consumer, needs to buy what they need on a daily or weekly basis. As I said, they're, they're forced to buy. As an example, if a restaurateur wants to populate his or her wine list with, say, five or six unique different wines, they have to buy full cases, 30 or $40 a bottle. That's two to $3,000 outlay instead of two to 300 and anybody, yeah, anybody in the restaurant business knows that their profit margins are not huge. It's not like they have wads of cash just lying around to do that. Not only that, cash, well, you know that, exactly. Cash is king, and they have limited space. So, uh, you know, the analogy I put to people is that if, if you, Jill, have to go into a grocery store and you're forced to buy 80 pounds worth of lamb for two people, you're not, you're stuck, and it's expensive. So... You know, the restaurateurs need the choice and they don't have it. Government says. And and what kind of uh, uh, what have you been hearing on this? Because this is something as well. And, and as we just heard that short clip from uh, the uh, the interim commissioner of commission uh, competition, sorry, who's now urging the province to update uh, the province itself. The NDP has done a report on this and received almost unanimous support to change the laws. Are you hearing anything as to why it's not happening? Well, you know, we always get put on the back burner. There's always another important issue, whether it's a fast ferry or a porch deck or something along those lines that gets built. Now it's cannabis. But the, here's the thing. We've been around for 35 years, the private, private industry. So this is nothing new, and we're not going to go away. So we need to have this dealt with as soon as possible. Previous government tried to do it, and they didn't do a very good job. Exactly. I should, yeah, you're right. It's not it's not solely falling on the on the new Democrat government no. for not doing this. There have been much like ride sharing. The previous government did nothing on this file either. Absolutely. And I have to commend David Eby and what he's done. He hired Mark Hicken. Mark Hicken did a, a, a big liquor review, the reports on his desk and other people's desks. So they're being far more proactive in a very shorter period of time than the previous governments that I've I've dealt with, and I've been in the business 33 years, so starting from Bill Vanderzam all the way up, it hasn't been dealt with. Uh, Hicken's panel, he concluded in that report that there are, in fact, significant problems with the current wholesale distribution model. And he even said one of the main challenges is delays in getting products to market and also uh, touched on uh, the Competition Bureau, touched on the fact that we're seeing this this exploding of craft products and these different products and, and restaurants and places can't access them. Oh, absolutely. As an example, so, so the 12 private wine stores were not allowed to sell spirits, were not allowed to sell beer. So in other words, the small, the, the small craft distillers and breweries, we can't promote. We, we've been on the forefront of promoting
promoting the small uh, independent wineries, but there's a whole market that we can't promote. We can't help promote a made in BC product. Uh, and plus, of course, you know, other, other imported wines, uh, um, products from around the world. So it stifles opportunity. And, you know, when we got in the business 30 odd years ago, there was six BC wineries, uh, no craft breweries and no distilleries. So you could see how the markets exploded and we can't even participate in that. Uh, one of the issues uh, as well is uh, the fact that the uh, BCGEU is uh, are the jobs at the government liquor stores, and there is there has been pushback there. How big of an obstacle is is the fact that uh, the private the private or the government stores and the government workers don't want this? Well, I'm going to say it's probably significant, but you know I'll, I'll go back to 30 years when you know my shop was the first private wine store, and there's been an explosion since. That's the same argument they used. The stores are still in business. They still have jobs. We're all benefiting because of the explosion of uh, the micro, uh, microbrewery, micro distillery, and the small boutique wines. Look, 30 years ago, there was no selection. Uh, shelf space is at a premium. Government stores can't carry everything. And the other stores, the private stores, have made up that difference. So now, we, we've added it to the industry. We haven't taken into anything away. We've added to it. So it doesn't make sense to me. The uh, the Attorney General, uh, David Eby, did say uh, that uh, one of the reasons is that, uh, as you mentioned, he said that the challenge is that the legalization of cannabis is happening at the same time, uh, that they've been focused on that and dealing with that, and that uh, one of the priorities that they have is also uh, that liquor works better in the hospitality industry. But like you said, do you feel kind of like there's always another issue that is being put out there saying this needs to be dealt with first? Absolutely. I, I, I... I base my opinion and my comments on 33 years of doing this, and we're always put on the back burner. And as I said earlier, we are not going to go away, and we're going to we're going to be pushing for this. And it's great news that the competition uh, bureau has has sort of come to our defense. Uh, do you think that will make a difference uh, that the, the the competition bureau is now involved, saying, "Hey, you guys, why don't we modernize these rules?" Well, I, I certainly hope so. I mean, we, we need all the help we can get. Um, it, it's always people don't understand our position and, and, you know, speaking to you and, you know, and other shows uh, has really helped um, get that message out and hopefully it can help small business. Just one classic example. There's uh, the Parthenon on West Broadway, Greek specialty place um, is moving across the street. The owner contacted me. He wants to serve Greek wines, which some of the hottest wines in the UK and in the United States, by the way, uh, wants to serve Greek wines. And I said, I'm sorry, sir, I can't sell you some of the unique Greek wines I bring in. Austrian wines, amazing products. Some of the great restaurants like Hawksworth would love to serve some of the stuff I get. Can't do it. So consumers are getting screwed by not being exposed to some of the really unique Greek wines that are out in the market. And, and what and, is the law? Sorry, so and they can't, they sorry. couldn't, they couldn't buy that by the case from you and and serve nope. it. Nope. No, no, nope. no, not allowed to because the government says so. That's it. Well, it's um, I, yeah, I think uh, talking about it exactly and and getting it out there and calling for this change because it doesn't sound like it would take that much work to make these changes. No, it wouldn't. And I'll, I'll just give you an analogy. When I first got in the business, we weren't allowed to advertise. We weren't allowed to deliver. We were, allowed, we were not allowed to have off-site wine shops. We weren't allowed to uh, have wine dinners. 
we're allowed to do that now, and the world is still okay. I mean, we're still alive. There hasn't been World War III. We're okay. And I had really every excuse from previous people at liquor licensing why we couldn't do those things. We could do them all now, and it's helped our business. Well, we will continue to talk about this and hopefully uh, see changes being made. John, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show this morning. My, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Last month, a class action lawsuit was launched in B.C. Supreme Court, and the suit is suing the provincial government for damages that are related to its ban on the grizzly bear hunt. And no matter what side of the hunt you stand on, whether you're in favor of it or opposed to it, this is a class action suit that could have a big impact here in BC. And joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Kenneth Pastor. He's an animal activist, an author, and a Vancouver lawyer. Kenneth, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Uh, what do you think people need to know about this uh, action suit? And again, uh, not, not focusing on, on what side of the hunt people are, are, are fall on, but what we need to know about the particulars of this suit. Well, I had a look at the suit and uh, it looks like the yes, you're correct. It's a it's an action framed in in uh, for damages framed in negligent misrepresentation by the government. So, essentially, the 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 action is to say the government didn't uh, treat these guides and outfitters fairly, and in fact, uh, uh, essentially deprived them of their livelihood without either by by le- legal means or at least without providing them with adequate notice or uh, compensation. And do you think they have a strong case? Uh, well, I mean, that's a good question. A lot of it will turn on what the what the uh, terms of the licenses actually are and uh, what, in fact, representations were made uh, by the government to the to the guides and outfitters. And it's certainly it's it's uh, it's not inconceivable that many of these people, apparently about 118 of them, um, probably make their livelihood, if not entirely, certainly to a great extent, from the from the ability to guide people into the Great Bear Rainforest and other places in BC uh, to hunt grizzly bears and a number of other species. Uh, and so, so it sounds like the the crux of this class action suit is that this was done, and they're making the argument that it was done without consultation, uh, that it wasn't based on science or done for for reasons other than perhaps the public uh, public feedback or public backlash with the, with more public uh, more members of the public opposed to this than in favor. Well, that's true. In fact, about eighty five or ninety percent of the public has consistently opposed the grizzly bear hunt for years now. And I guess this particular government decided, okay, enough's enough. And if that that large majority wants to change the situation, we're going to do it. And yes, that is certainly the the argument of the lawsuit that this was done uh, for a purpose other than as set forth in the Wildlife Act. Now, having said that, I mean, the government can easily amend the Wildlife Act and say, well, yes, uh, we, we now have this additional uh, uh, section which allows us to to amend the grizzly bear hunts uh, on on another basis. So even if it was a short-term win, uh, the government certainly could fix that up if that's the, 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 the sole argument or the main argument of the lawsuit. And and do you think I mean it's a very emotional topic for a lot of people there are there is a lot of opposition to the grizzly bear hunt in BC but is is one of the arguments as well that based on the science uh, the hunt was a sustainable hunt and actually helped in that it kept the number of these apex predators down Well actually that's a good question 
I mean, the, the idea that there's 14 or 15 mil, or 1,000 grizzly, bear, grizzly bears in British Columbia is based on the government's um, estimates of the number of bears that are out there. If you remember the DFO, uh, Department of Fish and Oceans, estimated millions and millions of fish on both uh, uh, both coasts of British Columbia years back, and only to their chagrin watched most of them disappear without having a clue as to why. So the idea that someone has gone out and counted the grizzly bears in British Columbia is ludicrous. And so, so where do we go from here then? Because we have the one on the one hand, the guide outfitters saying that they've taken a huge hit from this, uh, that it was done so quickly uh, that it's decimated their livelihood. And we have a government that's saying, well, we can't comment because it's now a legal uh, claim, but uh, claiming that they did in fact consult and standing behind their decision. Well, I, I mean, think, I think in, in fairness, that's that's going to turn on the facts and to what extent they did or didn't consult and how much notice these these people were given. If you even if you shift away from the strictly legal uh, point of view, you in my view you can't take a. And I'm completely opposed to the grizzly bear hunt. In fact, I've I've just written this book about it. Uh, but the fact is, uh, you can't take away someone's livelihood just in fairness and not give them some compensation. This this was legal up about a year ago, and now it's not legal, and all of a sudden these people are out of business, or at least substantially out of business. The, these hunting licenses do allow them to hunt uh, lynx, moose, mountain goat, mountain sheep, wolves, and wolverines, but I think the most um, lucrative part of the hunt, in fact, is for grizzly bears. Right, uh, people paying tens of thousands of dollars uh, to come to BC uh, to do that. Um, is, is it, what is it specifically about the hunt that, that you are opposed to? Well, uh, um, in fact, the, the whole idea that these, these, uh, these animals are there, in fact, to be, as, it, as it's put in the pleadings, I actually have a set of the pleadings in front of me, that the grizzly bears are to be harvested to a certain extent per year. In fact, they're treated as if they're corn or, or wheat, you don't harvest living creatures. You 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 could hunt them, but you certainly. This is how it's framed in the in the pleadings that the harvest is allowed to be such and such a number of bears. This is ludicrous. Um, the these are these are living creatures, and I think the the, the population has has um, come to the conclusion that you know these other animals on the planet um, are are actually cohabitants with us as opposed to simply products. Right. Uh, is it also because they are such majestic animals in that I think one of the concerns of, of hunters is that, yes, they're these iconic, beautiful creatures, although that can be subjective as well, uh, that if we ban the grizzly bear hunt in a fashion that, that, that is made based on emotion rather than science, what's to stop, say, a deer hunt or a moose hunt uh, where the numbers uh, are sustainable, but somebody decides that they shouldn't be hunted? Well, I see, again, just the, the comment that d- 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 despite the fact something is sustainable, does that give you a right morally or ethically to kill it? And just because, because you're not going to wipe the whole population out. It, a, a WWE study just came out a couple of weeks ago that was in the news that estimated that people have now wiped out 60% of the wildlife in the world in the last half a century. So given, given those stats, uh, it's, it's astounding that we could still even consider hunting big game in, in, in British Columbia in 2019. I mean, this is stuff people did in the 40s. This is like an African safari where people would go out and hunt lions. That's, that's a thing of the past. 
Uh, so do you think all big game hunting should be should stop? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, In but, fact, the, the the reason we're chatting is is this is, is I just actually released a book uh, this this month on called the Invisible Reich, which is in fact deals with this exact issue. And one of the one of the uh, the, the central tenets in this book actually it starts off in the Great Bear Rainforest in British Columbia, and the protagonist, of course, is is not uh, is not happy with this, and he seeks to disrupt the the ceremonies of the of the hunt. And the fact is that is a popular that is a popular uh, notion in in the G20. I think the G20 countries have realized that animals have some rights or should have some rights. There's movements all over the place to recognize animals as uh, sentient creatures, which don't simply exist for us to kill them. All right. Uh, We'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. But, Kenneth, we'll have you back on the show because I would love to talk more about this. But thank you so much for coming on the program this morning. Appreciate it. My pleasure. This is a story out of Miami. You might have heard about this. A hotel dishwasher awarded $21 million after her boss made her work on Sundays. And the jury in this case also found that she was due about $35,000 in back wages and half a million dollars for emotional pain and mental anguish. And this was after uh, Marie-Jean Pierre, who worked at a dishwasher at a Miami uh, resort, was were went to the complained about the fact that she was forced to work on Sundays and that her religion forbid her from working on that day. So let's bring in an, um, an, a lawyer who knows about employment law and can comment on this case. Uh, Stephen Gilman is an associate at Samfiru Termarkin LLP. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about this this morning. Hey, thanks for having me on, Jill. There's probably uh, no more fitting topic to discuss on a Sunday morning than this one. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so what do you think about this case? And and clearly there there's a lot more. We weren't in the courtroom hearing all of the details, but that's a pretty big settlement. Well, you better believe when, when news broke in this one, I've gotten a few calls from clients, uh, both on the employer and employee side. The two things to remember here is, number one, it's an American case. Um, in the United States, human rights damages are 10, 15, 20 times what they are in Canada. And two, a jury made the decision. So it's not a judge saying, looking at the law and applying it to the facts. It's, it's a jury acting on emotion. Um, so both of those kind of make this to be an outlier. And does that also mean, uh, since it was a jury case, that there might be more of a grounds for appeal? Yeah, and, and in this case, interestingly, too, there was a cap on, on the damages. So even though they awarded $21 million, uh, for some law, and I don't pretend to be a, an expert in the laws of the state of Florida, uh, but there's some sort of a cap that holds her to $300,000. But um, you got to think an employer would be appealing this. Um, whereas in the States, they bring these sort of human rights uh, issues in court. In British Columbia, we would almost be generally speaking, barred from bringing this to a court and have to go to the BCE Human Rights Tribunal, where the award in this case, I would estimate to be five to $10,000. So let's break it down, because I think I'm not surprised that you got calls after hearing this, because there might be people for very for the same types of religious reasons that don't feel comfortable working on Sundays or whatever day, and, and but, but have been fighting that or are looking at this thinking, well, maybe this is, this is something that I can use as evidence that you can't force somebody uh, to do that. So she was uh, a worker. She said that from the beginning uh, with the Miami resort, she told the her boss that she could 
not work Sundays because of her religious beliefs, but she was continually scheduled. Uh, what would you say to somebody who looks at this and says, well, is this something that I could use as as my part of my argument that I don't want to work Sundays? Well, it's interesting. There's, there's two things I would say if someone called me. Uh, number one, I'd say you probably have a human rights violation on your hands, and that's something you could pursue uh, whether you're still at the job or not. And two, forcing someone to work on a Sunday when they can't, maybe uh, due to religious reasons, or forcing someone to work any day if they medically can't, that might be a constructive dismissal where the individual would be owed severance. Um, so that's that's the one big distinction here. In the United States, human rights awards are through the roof, but there is no concept of severance in almost every state, whereas in Canada, very generous severance uh, if you're terminated or constructively dismissed, if you're told to work on days you can. And does it matter if if the, at the point where you had that agreement, say before you were hired, one of your conditions was I can't work Sundays and your employer agrees to that and then changes the rules? Or if you are hired and then once you're on the job, say you're at the job for a month, you come out and say, oh, by the way, I can't work Sundays. Well, it depends on the reasoning. I mean, you always have to let the employer know. Um, you know, if, if the reasoning, if the deal is when you start working, I don't want to work Sundays because uh, I like to watch football, that's probably not going to get too much traction. But if, if it's brought up from the beginning, if there's an agreement, it's a religious accommodation, if the employer then forces the employee to work those days, certainly it could end up in, uh, a constructive dismissal, absolutely a human rights complaint. Um, but the employer needs to know that information first. So as long as it's brought up and agreed to, I, you know, certainly forcing that person to work some weeks, days, months later uh, would be an issue. Uh, do you have to prove then, if you have an agreement with your employer that you cannot work Sundays for religious reasons, do you have to prove that you go to a church or a religious place? Because it could be used as an excuse for somebody who just wants to watch football. Yeah, I mean, there'd have to be an or of truth to it. Um, you know, if, if you were uh, going to say that, uh, I, I believe in this case she was... Um, a missionary eventist or something. I, I can't even remember exactly what her religion was, but she had a note from the pastor in this case. Um, so you'd need something. You'd need to say, you know, I can't work. I, I you know, I can't work on Friday because I, I uh, go to synagogue. I can't work on Sunday because I go to church. And it, and it would have to be believable, and it would have to be something you do because, of course, you go to a tribunal, they're going to ask for a bit more than just your word, something by way of proof. And does it matter what type of work we're talking about? Because not being able to work Sundays at an office that's closed on Sundays is much different from, say, a restaurant job that's open on Sundays where shift workers would be required from time to time, if not every Sunday, but some Sundays to work a shift. It's not going to necessarily matter. I mean, whether it's a reasonable accommodation or not. So let's say... Um, the only day your business is operational is Sunday and the individual wants an accommodation. It's going to be an undue hardship for that business uh, to accommodate. But generally speaking, one day off a week for a business that operates, you know, five, seven days a week is is going to be something most employers can accommodate and, and something that regardless of what your occupation are, uh, would have to be uh, adhered to. Uh, do you think, is it a good thing that it's different in Canada, that it doesn't go to the courts, it's dealt with by the human rights uh, tribunals? 
I mean, that, that cuts both ways. Um, it's in Canada, specifically in British Columbia, in some other jurisdictions, you can bring your human rights complaints to the court. But in, in uh, British Columbia, generally speaking, you're barred from doing so and you bring it to the tribunal. The tribunal is a bit more user friendly. So the average person can access the tribunal uh, without the assistance of a lawyer, much easier than a court. So in that sense, it's, it's uh, good for people who uh, may have a human rights complaint, um, but uh, don't have legal assistance. And just uh, one more point from the, the case in the U.S. Uh, apparently during the court proceedings, uh, her lawyer um, said that the Hilton, the hotel, argued that uh, the, that her boss was unaware that she was a missionary and never actually knew the reason why she always wanted Sundays off. Uh, does that point to uh, whatever your job, whatever you're doing, you need to make that clear when you get hired? Yeah, make it clear when you get hired. But I mean, circumstances change for individuals. And, and it doesn't just have to be in the context of a religious accommodation. You know, um, I may uh, hurt my back and need to take additional breaks. Um, you know, maybe I switch religions mid-course. As long as I give uh, an employer notification beforehand, because accommodation is a two-way street. Um, you know, the individual has to be reasonable and work towards uh, a, an accommodation and the employer has to do the same. Um, but as long as there's some advance notice, it doesn't have to be at the time of hiring, then it triggers the accommodation. All right. Uh, very uh, interesting uh, information on this. Uh, Stephen Gilman, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about it. I appreciate it. Thank you for working on Sunday. (laughs) All right. As you know, the B.C. government is requiring all British Columbians who live in an area with the speculation of vacancy tax applying to opt out of the tax. This was announced on Tuesday that people who own residential property in the taxable areas are going to be receiving a letter. And the letter will have instructions on how to complete a declaration and register an exemption. And the finance minister went on to say that by completing the declaration or in registering sorry this was on the website by completing the declaration and registering to claim an exemption uh, British Columbians will be helping to identify speculators and empty homes well let's bring in someone who has been opposed to this tax and has been tweeting about this latest uh, update as to how people are going to have to fill out the form Doug Finlater is now a counselor in the city of West Kelowna and joins us on the line counselor thank you so much for being with us uh, that's fine. Thank you. Uh, you were. Uh, we talked to you about this uh, when you were the mayor of West Kelowna, now a councillor. Uh, what are your thoughts on how this is now uh, rolling out with everybody in these areas uh, being told you have to prove that you're not a so-called speculator? Well, it's the negative option uh, billing, and basically you get a... Uh, a letter that uh, assumes you will be, you are a speculator, and that's. I think a lot of people are really insulted by that, unless you uh, apply for an exemption, and uh, that's the that's the nub of the latest uh, controversy. Uh, this is something that anyone on title, so a couple where you both are on title, will have to do it, and you'll have to do this every year. Uh, there's varying reports of whether it's time-consuming or not. Some reports say it's only a couple of minutes. Other reports say it's, uh, it can be time-consuming, uh, 10, 20 minutes uh, to, to fill all this out. I'm also concerned about this, the, the mail contact, the uh, letter. Uh, you know, we've just been through a referendum where 
at the end of the day, 40% uh, of the people that received the uh, the ballot uh, returned it. So what happened to the other 60%? Perhaps they chose to uh, not vote, and that's, you know, they're right. On the other hand, they may not have received it. It may have been assumed to be junk mail. It may have just been lost around the home. Uh, so that uh, I'd be concerned for the people who are going to get hit with this, and they really should be exempt, too, because this is not a very good way of, of contacting people. Uh, And there's also some concern because even though this release was put out on Tuesday explaining how people will go about filling out the form, uh, there's nothing that really explains what happens if, like you said, you're in that scenario of maybe you didn't get the form, maybe it was thrown into the junk mail by mistake, uh, you didn't fill it out on time. There's nothing to really say what somebody would do then as far as making it right or if it's past the deadline. Yeah, and hopefully that's something that they will come up with. Again, you know, might convolute the process a bit, but hopefully as this evolves, they they will be advertising and and putting something out that uh, if you didn't receive it or if you haven't returned it, you better you better return it by the thirty first. Little concerning that it is everyone on title. I uh, I know people that uh, put uh, other people on title. They may put their kids on title. Uh, adult children for uh, uh, estate planning purposes. Uh, there, there may be other a third party in some way that's on title, so it it could turn into a very convoluted process. Uh, on the other hand, for the great majority of people, uh, you know, they'll just have to go through the process of claiming the exemption. Uh, you've been quite uh, vocal against this as well. And, and when you were mayor also, I remember uh, you being on this program talking about it, uh, concerns yeah. about development, concerns on what it would do to uh, the city of West Kelowna. Uh, how are things uh, unfolding or what are you seeing as far as uh, uh, impacts from the uh, tax that's going to be in place soon? Well, the impacts are different here than they are, excuse me, in the lower mainland where you do have a lot of foreign ownership and that's something that everyone is concerned about in in the Okanagan we don't have uh, uh, any significant amount of foreign ownership uh, offshore ownership most of the people who are affected by this are people from British Columbia who own a home in uh, the Kelowna area and one somewhere else or people our neighbors from Alberta uh, we also have people who've owned homes they they have they've inherited a family home or they've left the family home but kept it and gone to work in Alberta and these are the people that are getting caught in it. In terms of construction, our single family is down so far this year. Single family starts are down. The multifamily is holding its own, which is probably good news. We do as a city, and this is what we were fundamentally concerned about as an eleven year old city, we are seeing a drop in revenue and projecting an even larger drop in revenue. Uh DC fees and uh, fees and charges, uh, building permit fees, uh, tax base in uh, 2020 and, and going forward, we're, we're, we're projecting based on, based on the trend, uh, there'll be less activity. Uh, we've had developers, uh, 1,000 home development just go up and smoke. They were, they were past public hearing and they've just walked away at this point. And, um, you know, if the spec tax is gone, perhaps they'll come back. Uh, and we have other developers who are telling us they're putting things on hold <coughs> until they see what happens. So it's definitely curtailing 
the development of the housing supply in the central Okanagan. That's, and that's what this is all about, is having more housing, not less. But it's uh, creating more homes is, uh, is being affected. And is it also because when we look at the Okanagan as a region, that Kelowna and West Kelowna are subject to this tax, but if we look to Penticton, it's not, and that other areas are not? Penticton and Vernon, they're, they're uh, very robust in the construction industry right now. Even Lake Country, which is part of the central Okanagan uh, on the borders of uh, Kelowna, uh, are doing very well, and they are not part of the spec tax. So this is, this is part of the, the mystery about why we issued a Freedom of Information request to try to find out why West Kelowna was targeted. We still don't understand it. And by the way, we eventually did get a reply after about six months, which is a very long time. And there did not appear to be any rationale for for how they chose the the uh, communities that would be targeted by it. So there again, we're concerned that this is a this is something that's being done on the fly. The latest iteration, of course, is this negative uh, billing. Uh, approach that uh, seems to be a desperate uh, uh, move in in order to get the data because they really don't have a handle on the extent of the problem and who 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 would be a a foreign owner or a domestic uh, owner that's uh, speculating they really don't know so it's uh, it's uh, very concerning that they they lack the science in order to implement this. It's also curious how the enforcement is going to play out. If somebody says, yes, this is my pri- I'm here at least six months of the year, or I rent this out for six months of the year, like you said, somebody who might uh, be working in Alberta but still has a house that they inherited or perhaps a, exactly. a place in West Kelowna, are we, I mean, are we going to see inspectors now taking notes as to how many days somebody is at their, house, at their home? I have yet to, to have anybody explain how the enforcement's going to work. Well, that's another another issue. You're absolutely right, and uh, this has the potential when they when they mail out 1.6 million of these forms. They say, and they're expecting only 32,000 uh, to be impacted. That's that's they must be hiring a lot of people in order to administer this program, and then look at those 1.6 if they all came back, which I doubt they will and determine uh, which pile they go in and uh, then are they going to have inspectors who go out and and peek in curtains to see if anybody's there or check the check the driveway hard to figure out how they're going to make this work uh, in a in a in a even-handed and fair way uh, Andrew Weaver uh, folded on this as uh, Mike Smith said to him he folded like a cheap camp stool uh, when he was talking to him on Friday uh, part of that compromise that led to Andrew Weaver supporting attacks that even he called awful uh, was that there would be consultation with mayors and with the areas uh, after it was implemented do you have any hope that that consultation will lead to anything or you that, that you and and others in West Kelowna will be listened to. Well, we did meet with the minister uh, and, uh, and and officials a number of times. Um, we, if you call it consultation, I think we were listened to. And actually, Mayor Bazran and I met with the, the premier, uh, and and he seemed to get it, but he did not want to. Uh, intrude on the on the domain of his finance minister and 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 and, and let it go. What was what Weaver compromised for was for an annual meeting uh, where mayors would meet potentially with the minister and her officials and tell them how it's going. But I I have uh, very little uh, uh, confidence that it will um, 
result in anything significant, but one can always hope, and uh, I'm optimistic. I won't be there because I've moved on with my life, and uh, as you know, I'm a counselor. I chose not to run for mayor after 10 years to to, uh, take a lesser role. All right. Well, we will be watching as this uh, rolls out and unfolds. Doug Finlater, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you.